Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of NHASED Spotlight, a podcast where we discuss educational topics in order to be a catalyst for conversation and action to ensure excellence in teaching, learning, and leading. This is Jan Yost, the Executive Director of NHASED, and your host for this episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to NHASED Spotlight, a podcast. I'm here today with Steve Tucker, who is the superintendent of Laconia School District and also the NHASED president. He'll be our co-host today. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jan. Um, And our very special guest is Tammy Musiowski-Warnman. Tammy is a teacher coach, an international education advisor and consultant. She's also a member of the class of 2014 ASCD Emerging Leaders and also an author writing for ASCD and Edweek Classrooms. Um, She's also on the ASCD Emerging Leader Board and also Global Kids Board. Tammy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Steve, for having me. You're welcome. Um, So today we're going to be talking about building classroom cultures and engaging students. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with us what led you to that work in these two specific areas. Sure. I think um, when I think back on my journey as a teacher, I really started noticing how hard I had to work to develop a classroom culture each year because um, for starters, you've got a bunch of personalities coming into a classroom and that may or may not know each other. So there's different levels of comfort already. Um, And then newcomers coming in don't know what the situation or the dynamic is. So um, those were some initial thinkings generally. But then when I thought back to my first years of teaching back home in Edmonton, I found that the culture was pretty easy to build, easier compared to the work I had to put in teaching in New York City for several reasons. The the school I taught in in Edmonton was really tight knit community. So really everyone knew each other pretty well and there was a great level of comfort and just community already kind of built into the tapestry of the school which was great, but also had its bumps in the way, right? Because it feel, you know, how when people are too comfortable sometimes and that can also throw the culture off a bit. But, um, and that's a different way to navigate the, the dynamics in the classroom. When I moved to New York, because I was new coming into a new school, I had to figure out the culture of the classrooms and the school the kids and the staff had to figure me out. And then when I was there, I was there for eight years at the same school. It took a couple of years to really, to figure out the ins and outs because I moved from a a semi, I would call it semi-diverse population of families to a much more diverse population. So there was a lot of cultural learning I had to do to be able to build the culture um, 
like the ethnicity culture background in the class so that we could understand each other in that way, but also in terms of behavior expectation and um, how to navigate each other in a classroom space when there's a lot more students than what I had taught before for some years and other years not. Some years, of course, you have 32 kids, others you have 18. So that also changes the culture in a classroom and how people can navigate about each other. So um, in those years, so really like the five, first five or six, maybe seven years of teaching, I found how I really had to um, shift my thinking and how I built the culture because people are just so different and it it takes time to build the relationships with everyone in the classroom and and then add in another adult like an, an assistant or a co-teacher and that changes the culture in a classroom too so you have to have those um, kind of teaching norms I guess so that everyone understands the roles of people and, and how each member of cl the classroom contributes to the community. Sorry, that was kind of a long answer, but <laughs> that's no, how it no. So it feels yeah. like, Tammy, you talked about different ingredients of a positive culture that we have to consider. Mm -hmm. Culture is kind of a, a vague phrase. And I wonder what is what is classroom culture and what does it mean to have a positive classroom culture? I think that's a really important question to consider because you're right, it is a really open and broad term and it can mean a lot of things for different people and it can look really different in different schools and classrooms. So I think we really have to understand as teachers that the culture building in turn, so if we classify what's the culture in your classroom, we can think about it as some of our behavioral expectations, some procedures and protocols that we follow, just so that the classroom runs smoothly. And so in that sense, we want we want to have our own input, obviously, as teachers, because we expect cer certain things of students, but a lot of times they don't really know what that is. So we have to make sure that we have those discussions and set up, um, like co-create our protocols with students. So they really understand that those things that make our, those kind of procedural daily things really will make our classrooms run smoothly. So there's that component. And then there's- Amy, the when you say that, when you say co-create, do you mean that at the beginning of uh, uh, your time with students at the beginning of the year, setting down and, and coming up with a, uh, agreed upon norms together so that there's some clarity about what expectations are and what a positive um, classroom looks like in terms of culture? Yeah, that's right. So I think that's part of it at the start of the year where you set up your norms and expectations. What do we want to see each other of each other in the classroom? So being really specific about, um, you know, we can have three basic rules, respect each other, respect our property and be kind or thoughtful, something like this. But within that, we, again, those are very big and sometimes people don't know what they mean. So it's really important to engage the kids in, in putting forth the actions to show what does it mean when we're respecting someone? What does that look like? What are the words that we can use? 
And it's always better when it's coming from them because they thought of it. It's, you know, it's their idea. And it's just for us to confirm. So I don't feel like I need to tell kids, be respectful. That's one of those kind of automatic things we think, but they might not know what that looks like or what it sounds like because it depends on where they came from, from home or the last classroom or just walking in off the street. So we wanna be really clear about what um, certain behaviors look like and sound like. So words we can use and the kids can come up with those. We don't have to do that for them. They, they have tons of life experience behind them. They've been in a lot of classrooms probably already, even the little guys, you know, they're hearing it all over the place. So telling them doesn't always help build the culture, but when they're doing that, that really sets the foundation for what it's going to look like in their own classroom. And then as teachers, we can confirm that, yeah, that's a really respectful thing to say, or that was really kind of you. So those confirmations, or that's a great idea for how to be thoughtful and helpful to someone. So I think um, that co-creation for sure at the beginning of the year, but also throughout the year, because there's so many procedures that we have in our classrooms that we just kind of, again, we go through the motions sometimes, like, um, you know, kids are on devices. So what is the, procedure for for 30 kids to go get their iPads. That's a thing that you have to teach and walk through with the kids. So again, I don't have to tell them what to do. The kids can help decide, okay, well, first we have to decide which group is going to go first. How do we decide that? Those are all procedures that the kids can build. As a teacher, you can post it as the reminder, but they've created that. And so if they've created that, they're probably going to want to follow it because they're proud of what they've created. So I think I always think about that in terms of us as adults too, right? Like when we, when we create something or someone reads something we've written, we feel really happy and proud of the work that we've done because someone actually read, read the thing that we wrote that we hope was hopeful or helpful. So, so when we can get kids uh, in that co-creation process, it's, it helps them um, internalize what's, what the culture in that sense is going to look like. So Tammy, you, you talked about establishing procedures, mm -hmm. um, defining the expectations and norms, co-creating protocols. Um, is there anything else that as an educator, a classroom teacher, um, I should establish um, in order to make sure that I have a positive classroom culture. Definitely. So I think that one of the priorities as teachers is to really get to know our students as people. So, um, you know, ASED has the, the whole child tenants. That's one way to look at how um, we're making sure kids are safe and healthy and engaged academically and challenged. But that supported piece makes me think about um, how am I getting to know my kids as people and their families? Because everyone has, is coming from a different dynamic, whether it's uh, full supports at home or not so much support at home. So I need to know those family dynamic pieces. And so those are pieces of information that I would need to know. The other students, 
it, for, it's important for, sorry, for teachers and students as a community, we need to understand our backgrounds too. Where have we lived? Where, what schools did we used to go to? Where is my family from? What if, um, depending on our cultural differences too, looking at, you know, there's, there's not just kind of cultural um, or ethnic in all of our classrooms. We have kids coming from different countries, speak different languages, have different skin colors. And so when we teach kids to acknowledge our differences and understand that we're all, um, we all have strengths, we all have skills that we can draw upon and use in the classroom, that also helps build a strong connection personally, but also that um, foundation of trust. So when you, when kids kind of open that, um, side of that kind of vulnerable side, even where they're, they're sharing a little bit about their family and some of their traditions or their beliefs. And um, when, when one or two students start doing that, and then we, we offer back to them, oh, that's really interesting. Tell us more about that, that we can weave into our culture, classroom culture to, to celebrate differences. But yet we're all in the same classroom community and we're going to um, ca not capitalize, um, use our differences to learn and grow. So because we're not all the same, we don't come from the same places, we don't have the same backgrounds. So that's an important piece too. And that takes all year, those kinds of developments. That's just not um you know the who am i type of activity or i am this person at the start of the year as i get to know it's an ongoing process and so some of those social emotional um, check-ins and um, activities those can be built in throughout the year in content areas or reading or writing um, to make sure that teachers are understanding their kids and they're understanding each other too so when you talk about the, oh, that's okay. When you talk about the um, the elements of a positive classroom culture and setting it, it feels like that's pretty universal. Like the respect, the use of language, relationships. So if a child goes through a, a pre-K to 12 system and that classroom culture elements are all relatively the same, why is it that they need to be taught and reinforced so often? I, for me, um, I'm gonna connect this to just everyday life. I see the behavior of some adults and it, it makes me scratch my head a little bit. Um, so I think when we keep reinforcing those positive connections to people and the importance of understanding each other as people, it helps us in the long run become better people. So that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of natural judgers usually, it, it can tone that down a little bit. So, you know, you might be on the sub, you know, I used to ride the New York City subway all the time. And in my head, <clears throat> I was just thinking, you know, all these things about different people, when I really have no idea anything about them, but I'm making these judgments 
just by looking at them or what they're what bag they're carrying or what how ratty or high-end their clothes are you know that's just part of being human and we're going to have those thoughts but how we act is different too so when we when we reinforce that positive behavior throughout um, kids school careers basically it really it it creates this um culture of just carrying that with you and through adulthood we we hope right because school is to get kids ready for life, not just college, but you know, that's the academic piece perhaps, but um, we want all, all of our kids to understand each other, care about each other and take that up into their adulthood and use it as a, a piece of like their life philosophy, right? They, they wanna be a good person and be a good citizen and con contribute back to society. So Tammy, I was going to ask you, I'm going back to, you know, your classroom culture and establishing, mm -hmm. establishing it. What's the role of parents in this? You did talk about learning about the family's culture, their background, but the parents themselves, what's their role? Parents have a really crucial role um, in a few ways. I think that when teachers and parents have that communication right from the start of the year. And maybe you know parents from siblings that you've taught or just the, the school community, that's helpful. But just like we wanna be clear with our students, we also have to be clear with our parents so that they understand um, the, the processes that we go through in the classroom for teaching positive behaviors. And that that's translatable to home. You know, if, if we're teaching ways to, um, just tidy up our spaces even, you know, putting things away at the end of the day. That's something that kids can go home and they can, or they can take from the classroom and they can do at home as well. And those are things that parents can know about and then they can also reinforce that back. So, you know, you, I know that sometimes at home students aren't the same as they are at school and the opposite, right? They, they can be opposite personalities. But yep. some of behaviors um, can translate easily because they really are a, a, a lot of life skills. Like we just said, you can translate what you're learning in school, learning those positive behaviors and actions and use them at home. So when parents are in tune with that and hopefully on board with that, things at home might also be easier too when you have some kind of system set up and then everybody can participate in it. So true, so true. Tammy, is there a correlation between a positive classroom culture and student learning and achievement? There are, there, there is, yes, there's definitely research, but it depends, I think, on how people look at um, what their data streams are. So when you look at data, a broad set of data, obviously, um, like your feedback from students, verbal or written surveys from parents, um, you can definitely see that increase in positive academic achievement when kids feel good about the space that they're in. So there's a, a number of states that um, look at ways, you know, again, going back to the ASCD whole child initiative and making sure that kids have appropriate um, learning spaces, which goes hand in hand with 
the culture building. They, they have data that shows how kids have improved social, their social awareness, their emotional learning, as well as their academics. So I wouldn't say that that happens the same at every, in every classroom in ev or in every school because every place is different. I've seen personally, um, when, I when I shifted practices in including more student voice in the culture building, like the, the systems and protocols and, and uh, behavior expectations in classrooms um, where I had less students that made a huge, I think, a, a huge impact, as well as when I had a larger number of students, like 32, 33, compared to 16 or 18 kids. So those systems and those behavior expectations definitely I've seen personally in my classroom. Um, and I know that there, there are a number of schools who they, they use specific systems to set these behavioral expectations and it shows social emotionally as well as ac academically. So what, what kind of um, data have you looked at that would show that um, kids do better academically when there's a positive classroom culture? So when I'm looking at learning, I'm looking at the processes and attitudes that go with learning. So for me, it's a lot of observation. You, when you look around the classroom, we can learn so much, right? Just by watching what kids are doing, how they're interacting with each other. And that's a huge data point that's often overlooked in, in my opinion. We observe all the time, we know our kids really well, but then often when we're looking for data, we look for numbers. So there's sometimes that disconnect between okay, well, they didn't do so well on this assignment according to this rubric or this state test or whatever. But most of our data comes from that interactive piece where we're in our classrooms, watching our students, listening to them, writing our notes, looking at that growth over time. So, you know, at the start of a unit or a semester or even, um, you might have noticed certain things about a set of kids that, you know what, they just weren't quite um, getting, they weren't in the place where I thought they would be at the start of this unit. But as we've reinforced these certain things, as we've used these systems consistently, as we've um, increased different ways of engaging students, more peer work, all of those um, interactive elements in a classroom, then you can start to see the growth. And then when you look back at your notes, you can really see, oh, you know what? They have really, they've, they've really become more mo motivated when we do this kind of learning. So I need to do more of that. So that engagement piece really changes when, um, when we evaluate our data in that way, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, so it's, it's, quali it's qualitative data that you're looking at. Right, yeah. So qualitative data is just, it tells us so much more than the number as we know, right? I know we, we're still kind of in that quantitative realm, but this last year, I think we've had a really important shift in education, obviously. And hopefully some of those, those shifting practices will stick 
And so we can look at um, that a lot more of the qualitative data that teachers are collecting and have been collecting for a long time and use them to our advantage more. Thanks, Tammy, your last response, I think gave us the uh, perfect segue to student engagement. So, um, and obviously research is shared and demonstrated that um, engaging students in the learning process uh, really increases their attention, their focus, their motivation. Um, can you share with us what you feel are some best practices for student engagement? Sure. Um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, awesome. <laughs> I, again, going back to that co-creation piece. So if we're looking at engaging students, really tapping into student voice in a strategic way is really helpful. So anytime you're setting up systems or protocols, definitely that student voice increases engagement because students like to, you know, they like to be involved in that way where they know that what they're doing is meaningful, just like we do. Um, some of the, the practices that I use a lot are visible thinking strategies. So there's a lot of talking happening because I know that most of the time kids love to talk about something. So if you give them something to talk about that's in their line of interest based on your standards or your benchmarks, you can get them really engaged and want to go down a path of um, independent learning in a way. So even though you might have you know, this set of you're in whatever unit in math and you're working on these things. There are specific pro thinking protocols and hands-on activities that you can use that, kid, that will just keep kids engaged. So one activity you can use over and over in math because when you, when again, you're using your qualitative data. So you're watching who's, who's connecting to certain thinking strategies. So maybe it's a see, think, wonder, and they're looking at some object. They aren't sure what it is. They're trying to figure that out. Kids are curious. So when you ask them questions or you present something in front of them that they don't know what it is, they want to know what it is. <laughs> so they're going to start engaging in the learning in that way. So one of the things that I loved about teaching in an IB school was all of those provocations that we would present to students. So at the start of units or different, you know, if we're doing a slight shift in um, uh, what st standards we're presenting, we would always present them with a provocation, whether it was an image of some, something related to space or maybe some invention that we were sure they hadn't seen before. So questions start flying and the questions are pretty interesting. So from there, you can have kids begin researching. So depending on the level, we would a lot of times just start with an object, gather some questions and start doing some independent research. Kids are gonna research however makes sense to them. So it depends again on the level and the, and the um, comfort with technology or, you know, it context specific, but even the little guys, you can put out some books and they can find matching objects right up to high school. They've got computers to do researching on. So um, you can use one type of thinking protocol or one object 
to engage your entire class in different ways. So I guess that's another thing with um, kind of differentiation too, right? It's sometimes really natural when we just present something so simple. It doesn't have to be this huge elaborate lesson plan that's, you know, everything's laminated and all of that. And sometimes you need certain tools like that. But for, for me, the greatest engagement comes from something kids are curious about. And there's all kinds of things in the standards that kids want to know about. That has, that has uh, a connection with a teacher too, because a teacher has to make that engaging and um, hook the child and then yeah. hold the child, right? That's part of the craft of being a teacher. And the teachers who do that well, I suspect, are the ones who are more successful and that has an impact on culture. Exactly. And the same thing goes with us as adult learners, right? When I do workshops, I'm using the same practices I would use in my classroom because I want people to engage in what we're doing. I want them to be like, oh, this is a really fun activity. I'm going to take that to my classroom and do that tomorrow because all I have to do is find something related to our unit. So it, I just think that uh, one of my big beliefs is like just streamlining. And as you know, I move around a lot. So streamlining things and keeping things simple often have so much meaning and, and that can be overlooked. So, you know, sometimes that huge elaborate setup isn't going to be the thing that engages kids. It might look really cool and it might get their interest at first, but is it going to keep their level, keep them motivated? Is it going to keep them curious and wanting to learn more? Right. Makes me think about personalities in teaching. I think that a lot of teachers, even myself as a teacher, had a mental model of what a great teacher was. And sometimes that can be a great example to strive for. And then I think sometimes it can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you think about different personalities and different teachers, is there one personality that's that's really effective for teaching or can it be some, can a teacher be have many different kinds of personalities or can teachers plural? Yeah, I think that probably more teachers than we realize have different sides, right? So me personally, I'm pretty introverted, but I don't, I'm a teacher. So it's kind of like acting, right? So you step into a room and you just turn on your teacher mode and it's just like kind of a comfort zone where you're you're like, I, we're gonna do this today and da, 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 and then the kids go about their business. And so, but then when I leave, I mean, I love my friends. I love um, so like socializing, but the scale has to be small. And so there's kind of that, um, I guess it's a yin and yang thing, like a balance thing. So I can, I can output so much, but then I need to retreat. And I, a lot of my um, teacher leader or consultant friends are the very same way, which is really interesting because we're often on webinars or on podcasts or talking to people in large groups, but yet there's times where we just want to close the doors and not talk to anyone. So um, uh, an a opposite example, though, my former co-teacher, uh, one of them in New York, 
she is, she and I were opposites. Like her energy was just through the roof all the time. We were a great team to teach together though, because when I saw the kids getting like worked up, I would be the one to tone it down a bit and, and say, okay, Monica, let's, let's calm ourselves a little bit because even though the kids were excited and da, 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 you know, some kids take it too far. So we want to make sure that everybody's kind of in balance. And then, um, but she was really, we just had a great time teaching together because our personalities were so different. And I think that's one of the advantages of having a co-teacher is you can have, um, you can have that dynamic uh, back and forth and the kids that's motivating for the kids as well and, and kids want to get engaged um, but I think at home outside too she was pretty much the same so really high energy most of the time me as I said not so much I'm like on in the building off when I leave or you know in the <laughs> so um, and I do know that, you know, when it's conference time and a lot of us are looking forward to getting back to in-person conferences in some way, um, we kind of expect that we, um, it's, it's going to be really exhausting because we are learning a lot. We might be presenting, we're networking, all of those things. And you have to be extroverted to the max to do those things. But then when, when it's midnight or whatever and things shut down, you don't want to talk to anybody or just pause. You just well, sort of like the, you talked about the diversity of learners in a classroom. There's also a diversity of personalities on a teaching staff. And, and it's important that we embrace people for who they are. And it seems like we wouldn't want somebody to be, not that you don't have to step into a different role when you're teaching, but we should also be embracing teachers for who they are because there's not, it feels like what you're saying is there's, there's value in having a diversity in personalities and the teaching staff. Very much. Yeah. And I think that's what balances out the school culture as well. You know, can you imagine an, a, a large school, let's say with a really large staff where everybody's just maximally like maxed out on introversion, right? Super quiet. <laughs> you know everybody's in their corners doing independent things or maximum extrovert where people are just you know that would be we like productive noise obviously because we want talking conversations but that could that could also just blow out the other end too. <laughs> um, Tammy you know earlier you were talking about gathering data through observation so if I'm in a classroom and I'm doing that, I'm wondering what indicators am I looking for to ensure that the students are engaged? One of the tools that um, I find pretty helpful is that um, there's some indicators in the ASCD whole child um, tenants on the website. So those are some indicators that I use with a uh, couple of schools that I'm working with so they can use those. But then you can also look for, uh, well, there's pieces in our, our standards too, where depending on where you're teaching, you can pluck out some, some of those and build them into rubrics. But then um, there's also researchers like Philip Schlechty who has you know these kind of levels of engagement. So you wanna make sure that like when you're observing students, are kids just kind of, um, in compliance mode? Are they just doing, 
you know, following the motions of what you want them to do. Hopefully not, you know, you're going to get some of those sometimes, of course. Um, our kids kind of in that strategic compliance where they, they know when you're watching and, you know, that they're like, okay, I'll do this now, but then I'm going to disengage because yeah, I'm not do that. Right. They wouldn't so, do that. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I, again, people vary, right? So it depends on the content and the interest level. Um, then you're gonna have those that are just, the, the content is super interesting. And when you watch students, you can see, uh, you can see through their actions and what they're writing or what they're creating, the true engagement there. So it truly is by watching and then talking to them. So there might be just a few points that you've gathered together as a class um, what does it mean when you're engaged in your learning? So what are we going to be looking for? So again, that goes back to co-creation. And so then kids will know the expectation. And, and even when their interest kind of drops off and they notice themselves bec becoming disengaged, because at certain levels, they, you know, that's when they say, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done with this. So at that point, if they voice that or they recognize that in themselves, how do we then divert the path to get them back into being engaged again? So it could be just getting up and walking around to get a drink of water. Like maybe you just need that quick mental break or maybe we just need to tweak, okay, are you finished the research process? Do you need to start creating something now from what you've learned? So this all goes to that individual piece um, in, in our learning styles and, and who we are as learners. So teachers, you know, we're talking all the time. It doesn't have to be at the kids all the time. It's with them. So we're conversing and finding out, okay, where did your interest drop off? Why, why do you think that was? Was it something that, were you stuck on it? Do you just need a little help moving forward? Or are you just totally not interested in this anymore? And how can we kind of bring you back to the, the direction that we need to go? So um, this the, a lot of this has come from um, teaching in a, a, an IB school and, and shifts in thinking about how we engage with students. And this is something that we were doing in New York as well. But we were a little bit more regulated with how we had to run things back then. So. Um, it might sound a little bit, um, I, I don't want to say uh, unconventional, but kind of, right? Like you really have to have a lot of conversation with students to find out these things and ask them where the, the points of engagement are and then just create that checklist with them. So this is what I'm looking for. And this is how, this is how you should feel in your learning, you know? So you can, uh, providing examples to, to things they want to learn at home. So, okay, well, you're learning guitar. Why did you want to start learning guitar? It doesn't have to always be academically connected. We can draw that uh, life connection to them as well. Hey, the title of your book is The Minimalist Teacher. And I was thinking about the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about pre-teaching routines and establishing norms. And then I thought about the title of that book which seems to imply that teachers minimalize their role. And so I was thinking about the phrase gradual release, uh -huh. connection between what, you're, what you've talked about today and the title of your book. Can you talk a little bit 
to the title and what you're um, talking about in your book? Sure, that's a really interesting connection. And um, that's not a, a direct connection in the book, but um, so what we've done, I wrote with my uh, good friend and former colleague who now teaches in Brussels. Um, so we wrote the book in different countries the whole time. But Is that anyway. the extrovert you were talking about? No, no, different she's one. very introverted. So, okay. <laughs> um, so she and I had been having a lot of professional conversations. We used to teach together in Singapore. Um, so these conversations started, you know, in like a few years ago. And we always kind of came back to um, like, what do we really need to teach? Like, what are the important essential things? And what, what are the things that we can get rid of that just kind of bog us down? And so then we, we ended up coming up with, okay, let's start doing some writing around this. Maybe we need to come up with some kind of book, uh, like table of contents or a abstract or something. So our initial piece of writing wasn't actually just the minimalist teacher. It was um, a lot of teaching things. But then when we sent it into the editors, um, they pinpointed this one piece, like this minimizing in teaching. And Christine and I said, you know what, this actually is its own book because there's so many pieces to how to become minimalist. And of course, um, when you're moving around a lot as teachers, you're, you're always cleaning and packing your house, but you're also cleaning and packing classrooms. <laughs> so we have lots of experience between the two of us doing this. And so we're like, let's, let's think about how we can um, bring this into classroom practices and things like that. So we ended up coming up with um, a questioning system to help teachers filter through the essential parts of teaching. So the we have um, the first chapter actually is about creating the minimalist culture. And so that is um, some of those systems getting in place. And then we have uh, the bulk of the book is about decluttering things from your spaces. So we have a focus on physical spaces, but we also look at all of those teaching materials, the initiatives, the curriculum, and we go through and kind of pluck through that using this questioning system. So we have three key ideas. Of course, I can't say too much about it because it's not out yet, but um, three, three key big points and then this filtering system of questions to support teachers in determining what they need to do to really minimize what's in their space physically, but also mentally. So how do you just clear all of those teaching spaces so that you can really focus on meaningful student engagement and meaningful teaching so that you're not um, constantly thinking about the things that are, we think they're important, but they're not essential to good teaching on a day-to-day -day basis. Wow, I'm looking forward to reading that book. Thank you. You're welcome. So just for the listener, it's called The Minimalist Teacher. It's an ASCD publication coming out in June. So everybody, make sure you look for it. Um, and we'll make sure to um, mention it in the show notes. Uh, awesome. Tammy, I can't thank you enough. This was enlightening, um, engaging. So <laughs> thank you so very, very much. Thank you um, for and Steve, you're welcome. Steve, thank you for co-hosting. Really appreciate it. Thank you it. for letting me do it. It was a pleasure. Um, so. 
Hope everybody enjoyed it. Take care. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of NHASCD Spotlight. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And be sure to visit us on our website, nhascd.org.